Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. For any of you that are here as a guest or visitor, welcome again. And if you're using the black Bibles in the seats around you, 1 Peter 4 can be found on page 955. Our focus for this morning's teaching will be verses 12 to 19. And before I read the passage, I'd like to share an update from one of our church members. He's currently training in the Army and gone all summer. His name's John, for those of you that don't know. John says, hey, Phil, I'm doing really well. I'm having a blast at Army training. Since the course started on May 18th, I have had to wake up around 3.30 a.m. every morning and then return to my room around 6.30 p.m. The days are long, but they are rewarding. For example, yesterday, my whole class woke up at 3.30 a.m. in the middle of the woods under pouring rain. Our uniforms and field equipment got drenched. Then we were put through a gas chamber. Think tear gas during a riot. This was painful. Then later in the night, we high crawled and low crawled for 100 meters across the sand under live fire. That's real bullets, Phil. A few times I just stopped, looked up, and saw these red tracer rounds shooting above my head, and I loved it. I got back to my room yesterday around midnight. So there's your John Pay Army update. I hope things at Embassy are well. The Army recruits. They recruit guys like John. At Embassy Church, we're a church that wants people who don't know Jesus to come to know Jesus and sign up. Follow Jesus. Be baptized. There's a saying, though, in church lingo. It goes like this. What you win them with is what you will keep them with. If the recruiters in the army said, come, join the army. You'll get to travel. Come, join the army. You'll get health care benefits. Come, join the army. We'll pay for your education. All of which is true. But they leave out the part about 3.30 a.m. wake-up call in the pouring rain. They leave out the part about live fire, not just in training, but in real war. You won't stick around. Far too often, churches win people over with charismatic speeches, great music, shows and wonderful celebrations on a Father's Day. We're a cool church. Free iPad for the new father that visited for the first time today. What you win them with is what you will keep them with. My aim in this message is to make it plain that if we have been won to Christ in our hearts and we're committed Christians, 
We will follow Christ knowing that we have signed up for suffering precisely because we've signed up for glory. That's the big idea. Let's read the text in 1 Peter 4, 12 to 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. My brothers and sisters, the grass will wither and the flowers will fade, but God's word Indwelling in God's people, it endures forever gloriously. Amen? What you win them with is what you will keep them with in the army or in your evangelism or in your preaching or in your church services. If you came to embassy this morning for the first time and you were hoping for slick, smooth, cool, jazzy, hope you've already got the message. We sing old songs with these and thous. Sometimes, not all the time. We read the Bible twice, a third time. We pray. Sometimes we pray a long time. If you want to grow a church by it being entertaining, embassy, we're not doing a good job. The goal is not entertainment. The goal is faithfulness to a faithful God. Therefore, I want to sum up this passage of Scripture by faithfully explaining in a short sentence, Christians, they expect suffering because they're expecting glory. Or to say it another way, if we are Christians, we should share and expect to share in the sufferings of Christ. Precisely because we expect to share in the glory of Christ. I have said this repeatedly, and it's worth repeating again. Peter has two key words that I think summarize not just our passage, but the whole letter. And if you'd like to just get a crash course on the letter that we call 1 Peter, it is suffering first, glory second. This is the path that Jesus took, suffering first, then exaltation and glory. Christians are Christ followers. That's what the word Christian means. More on that in a minute. We also should expect suffering. Like Christ. Christ-like suffering. Because we also expect 
Christ-like glory. That's what you've signed up for. That is if you're a Christian. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, one of my hopes is that it will become clearer to you today from the Bible, not just Pastor Phil. If this is a recruiting pitch, come to Jesus. It will be difficult at times, but it will certainly be worth it. Suffering first, then glory. What I'd like to do is this. Let's see if these two words, if we just take one verse at a time, and I point out to you the suffering involved in that verse and then the glory. Suffering and glory. And see if this doesn't hold as a good summary thesis statement for our passage. So let's start with verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. First, suffering. Suffering's quite obvious. The word here, fiery trial, fiery ordeal. It's the word that we get pyro from. Those of you that live around me know that I like fires. I got for Father's Day this morning a kit to help me with fire. Yeah, come on over. We'll grill some marshmallows and hopefully I will not be too pyro crazy. Fires are great when they're in the right place for the right purpose. A fire in the fireplace, excellent, wonderful, warming the whole house on a cold winter day. A fire in the living room, not so good, not helpful. Do you get the idea? Fire can be painful, difficult, but good. Just like the sun. The sun up in the sky is a big ball of fire. It's good. We love it. It helps us grow. It helps us have good vitamin D intake for healthy well-being. It's good for your eyes. It's good for your sleep. It's good for the ground, etc., etc. How many good things are because of the sun in the sky, this big ball of fire? But then there's sunburn. And then there's skin cancer. And then there's blinding your eyes if you just stared at the sun for too long. It's holy. It's dangerous. And so it is with the judgment of God. It's good. It's powerful. When rightly applied and understood, this kind of suffering is glorious. See the text. Suffering. Fiery ordeal. Test you. It has a purifying effect. In fact, this word for fiery trial is associated with this idea of purification, which our text makes very clear, both here and earlier. Turn your Bible back a page. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's very useful for me to read this text and show you that when Peter's talking about the fiery ordeal, he, mean, he means it to be necessary suffering by the will of God for his people to be tested and purified and refined for what purpose? Glory. He says that explicitly in chapter 1, verse 6. 
There's a story that's out there that I've heard a few times. I don't know who gets the credit for it, but I didn't make it up. And it's that back in the silversmith, goldsmith kind of days, there was a pastor that came up and said, when do you know that the silver or gold is done? When, when it's ready after putting it in the hot molten lava for it to be purified. When do you know it's ready? And the silversmith responds to the pastor, I know it's ready when I can see my face in the silver. All of the other dross gets melted away by the burning hot fire of purification. And so the pastor went to his church and said, in the same way, the creator of the universe has graciously and sovereignly allowed certain trials in your life that will purify you so that he will be able to see his face in you. Pastor Phil, when is this trial going to be over? When he sees his face. And that may not be until you see his upon his return. I don't want you to think you're signing up or committing to a Christian faith that's filled with just bliss and joy and no pain or suffering. What does verse 12 say? Beloved, dear friends, you should expect this. Don't be surprised. It's actually a command. Don't be taken back by the fact that your life right now is extremely difficult. Whether you're a Christian or not, Seasons will come and go of deep and severe suffering. But especially for those who are Christians. We'll see this again in verse 13. Follow along as we see this idea of suffering and glory. And specifically, notice the language of sharing in suffering, which means we share in glory. Verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. First half of the sentence says, joy in suffering because of joy in glory. I mean, if anything, the big idea is coming straight from verse 13, but it fits for each passage along the way. You should rejoice. It's a strange thing to say. It's not just something to suggest. Some of you will sometimes be joyful. It's a command. Rejoice, knowing that you are participating, sharing, and fellowshipping with Christ in suffering. I'll give you two options. Every single one of you in this room, Christian or non. You can live in this world and you will suffer. And you can live in this world and you can suffer with Jesus Christ. Those are your two options of suffering. This text says Christians expect and even take joy in the particular kind of Christian suffering because it's a sign that they're really communing with Jesus. Scores of biographies have been written. Thousands of testimonies have been told, and many of you in this room can agree, and even amen if you want, that some of the nearest and closest that you've ever been to the Lord Jesus is in the most difficult and dark days of your life. He comes near to the brokenhearted. 
So if you say, sign me up for intimacy with Jesus Christ, I want love from the creator of the universe. I want to know him. Then say what Paul says in Philippians 3. I want to know him in every possible way. I want to even know him in the fellowship of his sufferings. The word here, share, is so beautiful, by the way. In the Greek, it's koinonia. Some of you have been around church long enough. You've heard this word before. It is not a good word to just translate one way in English. Koinonia. It means fellowship. It means partnership. It means participation. It means all that and much, much more. One of my favorite commentators said this. It's a word that you don't use other words to describe. You need pictures. You need images. You need stories. For example, you're looking across the room at the person that you know that you love with all of your heart. And you don't even need to say a word. But you share just the look on one another's face. That is koinonia. Such love, such depth, such history. Just a certain glance, a certain body language, and you know exactly what's going on. That is amazing, which is why he expects you to rejoice when you know that your suffering is the suffering of Jesus, that he in heaven is looking down at you right now, always interceding with you, for you, on behalf of you, caring, aware, not far off, not distant, not saying, well, every once in a while, I'll hear your prayers. He's praying for you individually right now in heaven, and he knows every single thing you have ever gone through in personal experience. If you look up into heaven and say, God, it's hard, he can just look back. I know. It was way, way harder for him to endure trials and suffering, and injustice, and temptation. Please don't play games with God. Your suffering won't even come close to the suffering that Jesus Christ experienced. Have you ever felt wrongly accused? I give you Jesus Christ, who never once sinned with his mouth, with his body, with his actions. Have you ever felt physically in deep pain and turmoil? Let's dial back a few weeks to the Passion Week and Christ's tremendous, painful, physical suffering. Have you ever felt abandoned? Have you ever felt like your father left you? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I tell you, there is much for you and I plumb the depths of the sufferings of Christ, knowing that there is a kind of suffering, a type of suffering, a kind of trial and temptation that he has endured for your sake that he did not need to. And that God stands in heaven looking down above and saying, I know. Do you know that he knows? We share and expect suffering 
because we also expect glory. Verse 13 says that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I want you to notice verse 13 very carefully. Notice how it begins with the command to take joy in this kind of koinonia, deep, intimate fellowship of sharing in Christ's sufferings. But then notice that when he says, so that, because you will, and then he repeats himself because it's like he's overflowing with joy that he can't even contain himself. That you may also rejoice and be glad. He says the same word twice, which is why the English says it two different ways, because it would sound stupid. That you may also rejoice and rejoice when his glory is revealed. It's not so smooth, is it? And I think that's the point. It's startling how great the joy is. If there is a kind of joy that you're experiencing now by knowing that in the darkest, deepest pains of life, there is one who is walking beside you that did not need to walk beside you, but by love chose to put not just a mile in your shoes, but a thousand miles that you would never even go. Is, Is there any comfort found in gazing at the sufferings of Christ? I say yes, so rejoice that your suffering is not alone. Never, ever will it be alone if it is Christian suffering. But the main good news, the reason to be a Christian is you know that that suffering is not wasted, that that suffering leads to double joy glory when Christ returns. That every single trial that you have ever faced and will face will not be wasted by a sovereign God if necessary you endure trials. If necessary, assuming it was necessary. It was necessary for you to get the news of cancer. It was necessary for you to get the report from the doctor. It's not good. There's nothing else we can do. It's time to say your goodbyes. Necessary suffering for Christians can have great, great confidence in a God who does not just pay us back with vengeance, but vindicates us the way he did Jesus Christ with resurrection, new life, glory. And the hope we have of this is not just the future return, but the ever-present down payment of the Holy Spirit, which is where he goes next in verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Have you forgotten yet the big idea? Suffering first, glory second. Peter is teaching us all over, but especially in this final section on suffering. And in case any of you are like, man, this book is a downer. It talks a lot about suffering. This is its last section on suffering. And then we change topics in chapter 5 and cover a few other areas before we close out the book. So I think he's compactly, repeatedly saying suffering, insults glory, blessing, the Spirit of God resting upon you. And this reference to the Spirit of God resting upon you is not about some future hope, future return of Jesus. It's about the present coming of the new age. A new day has dawned when Jesus rose again, ascended to heaven, and poured out his Spirit. It's actually quite fitting that we, in this western hemisphere of the world, started rechanging the way we count time. Time has changed. History has forever been undone with the spirit of the, 
of, the, of God coming down through the power of resurrection and glory. So notice, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, blessed. Suffering, glory of blessing. Why would we be blessed for being insulted? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. There's a great story about insults for the name of Christ and even physical beatings and persecution. It comes from Acts chapter 5. If you've never read the story, it just simply goes like this. A bunch of early Christians, Peter and some of those early guys, when they were insulted, when they were commanded to stop preaching the gospel, when they were beaten, they went home and said, rejoice, we are worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. We're blessed. That means we're authentic, we're true Christians. And it's at this point that some of you I know might be tempted to think this. Well, I've never been beaten for my faith. I mean, when was the last time somebody called me up or sent me an email and said, Pastor Phil, can you pray for me? I'm about to get stoned tomorrow for my faith. It's not happened. We're on a good streak, and I mean that in a good way. However, notice that his example here is not physical suffering. And in fact, I would argue all the way back to chapter 1, verse 6, when he talks about the various trials, he uses the word grief on purpose because I think the main theme he's talking about is not the turmoil of physical persecution, martyrdom. They're serious Christians. I feel pathetic. It's the everyday ordinary insults and difficulties that you will feel because you did not put some kind of email cosign by your employer that says, we all need to put our preferred pronouns. You said, no, I'm not going to do that. It's the kind of insult that you face when somebody says, you believe Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation? That's so narrow-minded. And I could go on and on with the various examples that I'm almost certain to one degree or another, almost any of you, if you've been a Christian long enough, have experienced insults for the name of Christ. And the reason I bring that up is do not quickly dismiss this. Oh, that's not for us. We're comfortable 21st century Americans. We don't really suffer. Friends, yes, we do. We are insulted. There is great turmoil in our hearts for various reasons that relate to our faith in Jesus Christ. And if you've been paying attention, it seems as if that kind of opposition is only slowly and increasingly progressively growing. It is not popular. It is not cool. It is not fun to sign up and be baptized and become a Christian. You should expect suffering and insults and sometimes really wonder, did you not get that job because they found out you were a Christian? I've heard that quite a number of times from people in this church. Did you lose that job? There are many times where we will be insulted and it is not physical suffering. And I think you should take heart knowing that Peter's main emphasis throughout the whole letter is not physical suffering alone, but insult, grief, the pain of one's heart, the fear of tomorrow. What's going to happen tomorrow? Do you know? You don't. But you do know this. When you suffer with Christ, you share in his glory. And it's so, so encouraging to have both of these realities and the same confidence you have, Christian or non, in the room. 
you're going to suffer. The likelihood of the rest of your life, you just get a free pass. No more suffering. The reality of suffering for every one of us, knowing that whether it's inner turmoil suffering, relational strife with family members, co-workers, neighbors, neighbors in the community, there will be suffering. That's a fact. The question is, are you suffering as a Christian? Are you suffering as a Christian in such a way that you know the Spirit of God is confirming in you that you're suffering as a Christian with joy, with blessing, with the hope of glory? Peter makes it clear for all of us in case you're confused. What does it mean to suffer as a Christian versus suffer just regularly? That's where he goes next. So turn, look at verses 15 and 16. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. I'm not talking about the kind of suffering that one experiences because you just murdered somebody or you stole something and then they got back and then beat you up or as an evildoer or criminal is another way to translate it. And then interestingly, there's this word meddler. It doesn't appear in the Old Testament. It doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. And it doesn't appear anywhere in any other literature in history. Most people think Peter made this word up. How cool is that? He coined his own term. What does it mean? It means somebody who's in your business. Meddler. It's combining two words about being nosy in somebody's affairs. It uses the word oversight, like you're, you're looking over the fence of your neighbor and you're all up in their business. That's the word meddler. Which is kind of an interesting list, isn't it? Murder. Thief, criminal, nosy. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Apparently that's a big deal. I did do some research and found out that it is a big deal in the Roman Empire. And it's one of the like cardinal kind of sins that if you're kind of all up in other people's business, you need to kind of just take care of your own affairs. So there is that argument to go for it. But I think the other way to read it is to say that he gives two very extreme examples. Murder and thievery. And then he gives two very just kind of general examples. So murder and thievery are pretty extreme. And then the criminal one could just be any kind of offense. And it could not be as severe as the first two. And so it's like whether you're suffering for big things or even little things. And that's, I think, the way to probably read this. The point is, is that if you're one of those Christians that are saying, yeah, I've been suffering a lot. You know, the police are after, they're persecuting me because I went to an abortion clinic and I threatened to bomb the whole place because I hate abortion. No, no, friends, that does not count as Christian suffering. That's just suffering. You're being foolish. You're being non-Christian. Bombing and threatening violence to anyone is sinful and wrong. So don't go around even than that extreme example. Let's do a more just generic example, like Peter. I was sharing the gospel with somebody, and they, they just ignored me. And then you find out more details, or you observe the person, and you realize that they're being obnoxious, that they're, they're talking over the other person. They're not actually having a conversation, and that they're shouting and yelling, and they're basically beating them over with the Bible. Like, hey, buddy, I don't think that they were saying I'm persecuting you because you follow Jesus. I think that you could have been talking about the Chicago Bears. And they would have been like, please go away. You're annoying. Do you see the difference? There's Christian suffering, which is polite, gentle responses about the gospel. That's actually from 1 Peter 3.15. 
Be ready to give it a defense, but do it with gentleness and respect. Be able to actually listen to the other person because perhaps maybe they have something to say that will help you in the conversation. Instead of just bowling over people with, well, I was doing evangelism for Christ and then I got persecuted and kicked out of the restaurant. No, they should have kicked you out whether it was about Jesus or not. And that's his point in verse 15. Let your suffering actually be Christian suffering. Actually act like a Christian. And then look what he says in verse 16. When you suffer for being a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And there it is again. If anyone is suffering as a Christian, that's part one of our big idea point. Suffer first, but don't be ashamed. Glory is coming. You should expect being called names and insulted. And in case you didn't know, this is actually a very interesting text because the word Christian was a derogatory slur in the early days of Christianity. We now are so used to hearing it that we think it's a good, normal, neutral kind of term. It was an insult to say, you're Christian. It was associated with being a cannibal. It was associated with being a person that was an atheist because they didn't follow all of the Roman gods. There's name after name that Christians were called. And so the term Christian itself was not coined by Christians. It was put on them as a label. It would be like today if somebody were to say, you're one of those Jesus freaks. And not in the cool DC talk 1990s way for those of you that know. Like the bad, you're a freak. You're a Jesus freak. That's the word Christian in this context. And do you know what he's saying? If you get that label, don't feel any shame about it. Sense the coming glory. You're worthy of being called a Christian. Glory is coming. Glorify God with that name. That's a good name, not a slur. And so it is. Here we are 2,000 years later, and Christians persevered year after year. And now Christians no longer a slur anymore. I wonder what it is that we may endure that seems to us like a horrible term. Maybe a hundred years from now, our grandkids are going to be called something that now is just kind of common everyday place and it's actually a, a compliment instead of an insult. Our last and final section, I think, will confirm yet once again that the idea is suffering comes first, or in this case, the idea is judgment. But then... There will be salvation and glory. Follow along as I read this last section, verses 17 to 19. For it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This last little section is telling us that there is a judgment of God that is coming for everyone, universally, the righteous and the sinner. And he's saying that that judgment will begin first with the household of God. 
The easy way to understand this phrase is to really just know your Bible really well. It's an Old Testament kind of idea. It's all over the prophets. Malachi is probably the best one. So if you want to read Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, jot that down and see, oh, the refining fire of God's judgment begins with him cleansing his house. Or in that case, in Malachi 3, God's temple. And the idea is this. The judgment that will purify the whole earth, it begins on the earth before the second coming of Jesus. And so what he's referring to is that when you feel the heavy heat of God's ordained, fiery ordeal, and it hurts, you can have confidence that this is the end just around the corner that we saw in 1 Peter 4, 7. The end is near. The judgment of God is coming. It's coming for all. And it's beginning with the persecution and the purification of God's house. And he's allowed that suffering to exist for a little while so that we become holy and he can see his face in us. But then also because of his extreme patience to want to save sinners. Notice the way he talks about salvation clearly in verse 18. If the righteous is scarcely saved, and this is the passage that Matt got up earlier for us and read from the book of Proverbs chapter 11. And here... It's a, it's a direct translation from the Greek, but the point is, is that the righteous are saved. The word scarcely might trip up some, but the point is to say that the, the saving that happens, it comes at great cost. It wasn't easy or simple for the righteous to be saved, which then points us really to the gospel of God that's referred to in verse 17. The gospel of God is none other than the righteous son of God, Jesus Christ, coming into the world and living a perfect sinless life. And then he died on a cross, the righteous for the unrighteous. He died in our place as our substitute for our sins. The sins of all who would repent and believe. He died for the sins of the whole world, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says. To make propitiation for the sins, for the purification and the cleansing of those who are his children. And receive that gift by faith and trust. So, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, realize that the reality of persecution is one visible evidence. It is one sign that you can know right now. Is God real? Like, is there a God? Well, are people persecuting Christians? Does the whole world just love Christianity? Or does there seem to be a particular kind of suffering that Christians experience? Not for being obnoxious. Even for being kind and considerate. That, my friends, is evidence right in front of your face that God's word is true and that Christianity is real. Evidence that you don't need a science textbook for. Science and the Bible match up. Evidence that's not about history. It's right in front of your face. It's actually probably sitting next to you. The stories and testimonies of Christians who have had to endure great suffering for being a Christian. And that shows you that suffering that currently exists for Christian faith is a purifying sign Judgment is coming. And if it took the blood of Jesus on the cross to save the righteous, I wouldn't want to be one of those that disobey the gospel of God. Stiff arm and reject this free offer of good news, the grace of the gospel to save sinners and make you righteous and purified. I hope as we've walked through this text, that when we get to verse 19, it's very obvious to you that this is a good final summary statement of this sermon 
but really everything we've covered so far in 1 Peter. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good because they know there will be glory. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, on this Father's Day in American celebration of fathers, we want to first and foremost thank you as our faithful creator, as our sovereign king, ruler, and Lord, who wants to know us personally and intimately. We thank you for sending forth your son into the world to rescue sinners. We thank you for the gift of salvation, that it is a free gift. And we pray that the Holy Spirit of God would rest upon every single person in this room and anyone who hears these words. Oh God, help us to sign up for following Jesus, even if it means baptism by fire first, even if it means death to ourselves and suffering, and even quite literally, death before resurrection. I pray that your spirit will give us supreme, uttermost hope in the glory that will be revealed to us soon enough. Thank you for the manifold wisdom of God, the the number of ways you've already revealed to us, the amazing glory of your plan of salvation. And I pray that as the church is purified and persecuted, we would remember the end is near. It's at hand. Hold fast, church. I pray that we would have great confidence in the glory in the same way that we have confidence that there is suffering right now. May the reality of suffering match the reality of coming glory. And may that help us press on for even another hour, another day, another week. Thank you for your word. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.